Welcome to the second of the American Literature Association Conversations series. This one is dedicated to the American short story. I'm Jim Nagel, president of the Society for the Study of the American Short Story, and I'm doing this program at the invitation of Alfred Ben Dixon, who is head of ALA. Our speakers today are Oliver Scheiding of the University of Mainz and Cassia Bodhi of Cambridge University. Welcome to both of you. Hi. Hi. <laughs> All right. In America, there has been a tradition for more than a century of reading children a story in the evening before they go to bed or when they go to bed and before they go to sleep. Everyone of uh, virtually every uh, uh, nationality or race has done that for a very long time. Is that tr the tradition in your countries as well? Absolutely. I still like to be read to when I go to bed. I think, you know, this is a very interesting uh, question in terms of contemporary reading behavior. Uh, uh, and I remember reading in The Guardian in, in an issue of February 2020, you know, that there's actually a decline in reading stories to children and also um, in terms of a reading capacity and also uh, an ability uh, by parents or in parenthood to read stories aloud. Um, so I think, you know, there are, you know, probably shifts, you know, in this behavior and this parenthood behavior and reading stories aloud from country to country. Huh? And the reasons for that are probably pretty multifold. I wonder, though, if parents are putting on audiobooks. One of the things I was thinking about in terms of reading generally, but also particularly with the short story, is how many people experience short stories um, through um, audiobooks or podcasts like the New Yorker's fiction podcast, say, the, the Writer's Voice or um, Selected Shorts and, and, and things like that. Because I think in terms of sales, audiobooks are the, are the really growth area of the last few years. And apart from that, uh, Casey, I would also argue that um, in terms of the audiobooks and in the realm of children's books, you also find um, a lot of illustrated books currently on the market. Uh, and um, uh, this um, illustrated book business uh, may also replace, you know, some of the old business of anthologies or let me say short story collections that you read aloud and to children. Uh, so the availability is also, I think, a very important Important point in this respect. The uh, traditional justification for literature has been that it entertains and it instructs. I think it's pretty clear that children are entertained by stories when you read them to to them, and some children won't go to sleep unless unless you tell them a story. But how do we instruct them? What educational value is there in the children's stories that you have? Told your children. Since I don't have children, maybe Oliver should answer that one. <laughs> yeah, we have we have th three children, uh, and what what we did, uh, I, I I read aloud a lot of stories uh, because you know I remember you know when I was young, um, I was also I loved actually my parents reading stories to me, uh, and so this memory also came back. And quite interestingly, when our son was born, you know, in 1997, uh, um, the um, uh, the first Harry Potter volume was out. Um, and so we also very early on, you know, started reading aloud this kind of, you know, fiction. Huh? So not, so not short stories, but let me see, in installments, so to speak, I read it aloud, you know, to, to my oldest son and then to the other children. And uh, what we realized, you know, is 
not only reading aloud, you know, is so important, but also talking about these stories, you know, and almost in a in a particular fashion perform the story yeah, when you read the story to them. Yeah. So it's a very complex kind of activity. Yeah. So you are a, a nurturer and at the same time you are also in a way a teacher, yeah, making them learn language and uh, and also learning about the fascination of, let me say, literature. Yeah. So it's a very complex, let me say, nightly kind of performance that you do almost then every day. Yeah. And I can assume you know, Currently, just an, a word, let me say, uh, on this uh, pandemic situation currently. Huh? And I think, you know, with these increased indoor activities for children, I sometimes wonder, you know, what is actually, you know, read to them or let me see how they are taught then by parents. Let me see in this very particular situation, which we are currently in. I've always thought that there's also the transmission of sort of fundamental values in a culture. Let's do a simple one. The, the tale of the tortoise and the hare uh, instructs children that slow and steady wins the day, not just one big burst of energy or attempt at something. But there are things that are more complex as well. Little Red Riding Hood is a story about a little girl who's set upon by the wolf and saved through the intrusion of the woodsman. I thought that is uh, sets in place the values important for Christianity, the notion of Christ coming in as a savior in the battle between good and evil, and children are, can be receptive to those religious values because they've heard, they've accepted the notion of a savior coming in in the story of Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, don't we do something deeper in telling stories to children uh, beyond simply entertaining them? Absolutely. Um, I suppose thinking also about how adults read or listen to short stories, um, there, there is a way in which that, that kind of um, education is also taking place, whether it's um, short stories that deal with kind of the, the issues of the day um, and you know, often short stories that are chosen by magazines like The New Yorker are, um, are kind of compatible if, uh, or in dialogue with the, the news stories that surround them. Um, I'm sure it's not accidental. Um, but also, I, I like the, the line that Richard Ford uses in his introduction to the Granta book, I can't remember if it's the first book or the second book of American short stories, where he describes um, short story writers as moralists. Um, and and what he means, he explains, is that the short story is always instructing you to pay attention, to pay attention to everything around you, because this what seems fleeting and trivial might turn out to be really significant. Um, and and that, that always struck me as a very kind of good definition of what short fiction can do. Uh, Faulkner said the uh, justification for liter the only subject worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. I'm wondering if stories don't also teach young people and even older people something about what it means to be a human being, what kinds of internal struggles all of us have as we go through life, and those things might change with each decade of our, our lives. Um, and uh, that would be interesting to study, wouldn't it? 
Yes, I think so. And uh, particularly um, um, coming also back to what, what, what Casey just pointed out, if you look into 20th century short stories, like the early 20s or the 30s, what you then very often find, of course, are initiation stories. Um, and of course, you know, this type of, of, of short story, you know, instructs also, if we come back to young people, like the way into adulthood, for instance. Um, uh, but uh, of course, you know, currently, I think, you know, that type of a, a moral didactic tale um, has been replaced by other ones, by genre fictions or stories, you know, that are speculative in a way, but tell also young people a lot about the contemporary complications or like life as it is currently. Um, so in a way, you know, these short stories very often offer young readers glimpses into current affairs and how to solve problems in a way. Um, at least, or to realize them, become aware of them. Well, in America, at, at the moment, those kinds of stories uh, would likely be about race and ethnicity. Those kinds of concepts really dominate popular culture right now. Is that true in England and in Germany as well? Yes, um, although I'm not sure the short story is always the place where it's, um, I mean, in a sense, short, short fiction has been dealing with these issues for for a long time. I suppose I'm sort of interested in the, the way in which people now talk about storytelling quite often. And, in, uh, and there's a kind of slippage between um, nonfiction and fiction stories. And, and this is perhaps in, in these kind of areas in which you get, um, you know, a, a story that was read very much in relation to the Me Too movement, Cat Person, um, Christian Rupenian's story. But people kind of read it as if it was personal memoir, if it, uh, as if she was writing and, you know, was she a nice person or was, you know, what was she doing? And, and, and it seemed as if um, the, the barrier between fiction and nonfiction was being kind of forgotten a little bit. And writers like Lucia Berlin, who's being reissued is is now being read as memoir, um, although you know she she reworked her life in in many different in many different ways and and many different times. So to to me that kind of interest in or the 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 breakdown of, in some ways stories being read as as memoir, but also memoir um, being taking the form of short fiction. Um, the New York Times had that series, Modern Love, um, which really were fashion short stories, um, but they, they were personal narratives or essays really. Um, so, so people talk about storytelling and seem to, so those boundaries, those old boundaries seem to be somewhere breaking down. But quite interestingly, um, uh, Ira Berlin's um, uh, collection of short stories, you know, are advertised in Germany as short stories. <laughs> And not so much as memoirs. It probably also depends, let me see, on cultural context, you know, how you, in a way, advertise these books. Um, but um, I'm, I'm also, you know, I totally agree, you know, that there's, there's this blurring boundary between fiction and nonfiction uh, um, uh, forms of reception of stories um, that you find uh, in, in, in contemporary or in recent fiction. Uh, but also, um, on, on the other hand, what I find quite interesting, um, coming back to uh, uh, Rupenian's uh, cat person, um, what it also shows us 
let me say, what the short story can do and what, what it can achieve. Um, so it's really, uh, as some critic pointed out, the portability of the, of the short story that makes it survive. So in one context, it means one thing. In another context, it means something very different. Uh, and I think, you know, this kind of flexibility, this dynamics uh, really makes it a, a genre that will, in a way, yeah, stay alive. I can remember when I was a little guy, the kinds of stories I most enjoyed were essentially fables, uh, stories that use animals, anthropomorphic animals, as characters, uh, as in the two stories I mentioned, the tortoise and the hare and uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, I wonder if that tradition has faded in this contemporary world. One of the strands of contemporary short fiction that seems most um, alive and vivid right now is satire. Uh, and satire kind of that that tilts over into allegory or fable quite often. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the, the success um, of George Saunders um, and the ways in which, you know, a lot of younger writers are, are kind of in his, kind of following in his wake of, of pushing a kind of realist scenario to, to the limits and um, if, if he's not necessarily having, you know, animals there, he's having people dressed up as animals in, in theme parks and so on. And so, so, so there's a way in which the, the kind of boundary between the realist and the fable um, is, is breaking down, I think. Um, and, and, and stories also that are dealing with really the live issues of the day. Of course, you know, some writers, you have just mentioned George Saunders, but if you think of T.C. Boyle, for instance, um, he's very much, you know, in, uh, in the uh, in the light of ecological fiction, you know, dealing a lot with animals uh, and is writing animal stories, but not so much the animal fable stories. Um, but found it quite interesting, and I don't know if you have seen this, or uh, the um, New Yorker, um, the New York Times Magazine published in July the Decameron project um, and published a number of short stories um, by very recent contemporary writers. Um, for instance, Tommy Orange, you know, one of the Native American writers. Um, and quite interestingly in this, um, uh, uh, in the introduction to this Decameron, to the storytelling project, you know, um, the writer not only mentions the, the Decameron uh, as a you know collection of you know storytelling endeavors in a way or activities, but also um, the um, uh, Indian uh, Panchantantra collection of animal tales. Um, so I think also you know they are rediscoveries of earlier traditions, and they are then translated into more contemporary fields. Um, well, that, that's, that's interesting. Let me ask about another edge of all of this. A friend of mine uh, has a daughter who is uh, going to be going to kindergarten this year. She has a cell phone, and she texts with her cell phone, with her children her age, and when she gets into bed at night, she wants to whip out the cell phone and see if there have been any messages since she checked it, you know, 15 minutes before. Um, does that sort of thing change the nature of a story? Do stories have to be quicker or shorter or more attention-grabbing than they used to? 
No, no, I, I think, you know, I will give you another example. Uh, and uh, in case you please, you know, add to this. What I found quite interesting is the success of a French company uh, that sells these short story dispensers worldwide, you know, and they are, you know, installed then in train stations, in airports, uh, other public buildings. Um, for instance, I was quite astonished uh, when we held the ALA convention in Boston a couple of years ago in the Prudential Center, actually, there is such a machine. Um, and you can just walk up to this short story dispenser and then you have three buttons, one minute, three minutes and five minutes. Um, and then you just, you know, push one button and then a story comes out. Um, and uh, this company is obviously quite successful. You know, they are selling these machines now all over the world um, and they have collected not only that, a huge archive of stories by established writers, even Hemingway is available <laughs> through these machines, but also thousands of contributors, you know, who write see these one, three and five minute stories and then contribute to the uh, digital archive of this company and then they distribute it. Um, so in a sense, you know, this is uh, also a way of telling stories um, it's not a cell phone, um, but you know, it's something else. Um, and um, uh, this is probably a, a way we have to also think about, you know, when we talk about the future of the short story. Uh, now, are they simply in audio form or can you get a... No, 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 you just, this is the, the funny thing, you know, you just go, you walk up to this machine, you print the button and then it comes out on this like, cheap paper. It's like a roll. Uh, oh, and then, yes. okay. And then, and then you just, you know, you, you, you unfold it and then you read it. Um, and the paper is about this wide. Uh, so it's a very, a piece, a portable piece again, you know, you can take it with you. You may read it instantly, but you also may read it later on while you're sitting on the train. Fascinating. I mean, it's a similar, similar thing from Kindle does short reads, um, where you, again, can choose 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, um, and, and you will be directed to sections of of prose or there you know websites like one story that will you can subscribe and get a single story so so kind of digitally people are experimenting with different delivery modes of short fiction whether the ch fiction itself changes um because of this delivery i don't know i mean uh, famously again two three years ago jennifer egan or maybe more now published um the story black box in a series of tweets, um, the New York um, the New Yorker um, released the tweets over over several days, yeah. so thirty days even, um, and then published the, the whole piece. And she was saying, you know, she was interested in thinking about this as a delivery system. Yet, um, I don't know is is that short story something that couldn't have been written in another in another form? I don't I don't know. Um, Tao Lin has published Tao Lin and um, has, uh, his selected tweets with Mira Gonzalez, Tao Lin Mira Gonzalez, um, and and it is a kind of a book of tweets. Again, do what's the kind of? I mean, there are books of Donald Trump's tweets as well. But I mean, are are, are we reading these? I, but, the I but the interesting thing, Keisha, is that the black box, you know, the story does actually not originate in tweets. It was actually the way it was actually written was the following she was actually in japan um, 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 on, a, on a trip um, and she bought a, a japanese notebook 
And these Japanese notebooks are obviously different from our Western notebooks, you know, and they give you these spaces, you know, uh, these boxes, you know, and the boxes happen actually to be 140 characters long, or let me say left space for 140 characters, you know. And so you, she wrote the story into this notebook, and then it was later translated into this electronic digital format. So it's, 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 it's actually handwriting. Well, those are wonderful examples of the way in which technology is changing the nature of a, a story. Now, I, I've sometimes thought we've lost one dimension of stories that were that was there in the first half of the 20th century when uh, children or everyone listened to the radio. And what you got on radio was essentially short stories, uh, stories, narratives in short form. They'd have to fit into 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And on Saturday, children's stories ran all day. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were fascinating, and they were written by very good uh, people. Patty Chayefsky wrote hundreds of uh, these little stories for radio programs. Uh, in a sense, these things are coming around again, but in a different form because of technology. I think more people are listening than ever before, you know, than for a long time um, because of podcasts or audiobooks and people are listening to stories while they go running or while they go do their cooking or in the car and, and so on. So um, whether that will lead to a revival in stories that are interested in exploiting voice more than kind of visual effects, because in, in some ways when we're talking about tweets, we're thinking about the visual. And the, the other example with the technology I was going to mention was the writer Dennis Cooper has uses GIFs, little videos, animated videos, to make a kind of narrative. I mean, is that a short story? I don't, I don't know, but um, I, I certainly think um, I listen to a lot of short stories. I mean, I, I always like listening, and um, you know, especially when the authors themselves are reading them. I like what a colleague of yours, um, um, Paul Paul March Russell, um, has in a, in a recent article um, just pointed out. Um, he actually called it the split identity of the short story. Uh, and I like this term very much. So split identity means that on the one hand, you know, we still consider the short story as really a rarefied object. Uh, but then on the other hand, it's really that commodified artifact or has become a commodified artifact. Uh, and so uh, I, I think in, in, in recent research, you know, there's a lot done that in terms of a reconsideration of authorship, uh, in terms of these new media contexts, you know, that for instance, authors are very different from, let me say, Faulkner or Hemingway. For instance, what I do in my classes, uh, we study uh, also the home pages of these new authors. For instance, if you study Naomi Elderman's or like Jennifer Egan's homepage, you know, it's really fascinating how they present literature. Uh, you really dive into, say, their types of fictions, their storytelling cosmos, uh, and it's full of you know, not only text, but also videos, uh, other visuals. You know, it's really multimodal in a way what they present to us and how they present themselves. Uh, so they're almost like media yeah, figures or actors uh, than traditional authors <laughs> in a way. Um, of course, you know, they're still around, but it's different. Uh, there was a transition in uh, the telling of stories from radio to television. In radio, uh, I did some radio when I was a young man, uh, the absolute no-no was silence. 
you had to absolutely fill every second of airtime. But when uh, these things were broadcast on television, the visual elements of television supplied some of the narrative. For example, a car chase. You don't have anybody talking to you during the car chase, but it's certainly very dramatic. Well, you, you don't have that. In, in radio, they didn't uh, broadcast just tires squealing or something. Uh, they had to tell you uh, 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 about it. And uh, that changed the nature of things. Now that we've gone to computers and particularly to forms of narrative that are interactive, that allow the, the, the reader and the, the audience to make choices about the story, that will change things again. Yes, everybody likes quoting um, Borges as, as the kind of person who invented virtual reality and these kind of multi multi-path story. I, I don't know if he would recognize um, what's available now as in some ways related to um, the garden of forking paths, but but yes. I mean, the, 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 the relationship of the short story and film or, or television is interesting in that you think about how many short stories are often adapted to, to film or, or television more um, successfully than novels because there is the space within that narrative for um, the director, uh, the screenwriter to, to kind of invent. Um, whereas novels always feel that you're, it's about cutting back and, and kind of removing something from the story. Whereas I, I, I often feel thinking about the relationship of, of, those, of those media that short fiction um, lends itself better to expansion than novels than to to contraction and still you know what, what you then find say as a very characteristic feature of the short story is then its suggestiveness the high degree of ambiguity that makes it so expansive in a way uh, that you know allows the uh, yeah the imagination almost to flow along say the uh, the very condensed tale or story you are reading. Um, and I think this is also, you know, very different from the novel or from gamification of stories. Uh, because if you, because what you have just mentioned, these multi-path stories um, are currently translated into what critics call these ergodic texts, you know, or ergodic structures. That means, you know, you have to follow certain pre-established plot lines um, and then you have to solve problems. And so, in a sense, it's a very archetypal way of engaging the reader again, uh, because you um, almost you know you enter the forest and you rescue the damsel and then you return, so to speak. Um, but um, in in a, in a way, you know, I think the the, the the short story as a genre itself, you know, is more than that. It's more than plot, yeah, in a way, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, traditionally, uh, stories have been thought of as presenting a conflict with a resolution of some kind. Now, in more sophisticated literature, that resolution is often psychological and uh, deeply personal and so forth. Uh, in children's stories, uh, the resolution is uh, physical. The woodsman uh, hits the wolf in the head with an axe or something. Um, but... Uh, the most popular program on television in America is Judge Judy. And that is simply a series of conflicts with resolutions. I guess what's satisfying about it is there's a judgment at, at the end. It, the conflict is very clear, and she makes 
the the resolution. And uh, it's a stupid program in many ways, but still it it attracts millions and millions of people for every episode. And uh, if uh, you look at the script of a television program, it is basically, uh, I'm talking now about narrative programs, it is basically a short story. The script for uh, a two-hour movie is only 100 pages long. And for a one-hour television program, those scripts are under 50 pages. They fall into our concept of the short story quite well, I I think. And uh, there's a tremendous demand now for scripts of that length because not only do the major studios uh, film uh, these stories, but uh, such places as Netflix uh, and Amazon are making their own films and and running them as, as well. Uh, do you have such independent uh, producers of films in your countries? I'm not sure if thinking about adaptations of short fiction. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier about um, the New York Times um, series Modern Love, and that was picked up by Netflix, and it and it became what seemed like what were published as essays became stories um, through through the introduction of actors and each self-contained episode, and of course they couldn't resist in the final episode of the series bringing all the characters all together and making it novelistic in a way by having them interact in that in that final scene. I mean, a lot of novelists today talk about the relation of the novel and long form um, TV series. You know, David Simon talking about The Wire as a visual novel, Um, Jennifer Egan thinking about um, The Sopranos and the way you have kind of parallel narratives for, um, remind me the the title, The Goon Squad. I always forget the, the exact title. Um, and um, you know, and and a lot of um, a, a lot of novelists are kind of really, you almost feel are writing for Netflix or you know waiting for Netflix to come along and um, sign them up. I'm not sure so many short story writers have their finger on that pulse, but um, I'm sure many of them would like to. Wasn't it, by the way, Hitchcock who pointed out, you know, that the short story lends itself wonderfully to film uh, and who turned also, you know, some short stories into film. But uh, in a German context, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, in in, in a German context, I would say probably Wim Wenders, uh, the guy who actually directed uh, Paris, Texas, um, and perhaps uh, Volker Schlendorf, you know, um, who turned one of the major contemporary novels, The Tin Drum, uh, into a major film. Uh, uh, they are somehow interested in stories um, and turning them into movies. But that's that's it. <laughs> Otherwise, you I would really have to uh, more or less, you know, look into this, um, you know. Um, particular interrelationship or the, these interaction between film directors and, and, and authors more closely. Yes. Well, some major films are essentially uh, assemblages of short stories. I'm thinking of something like Pulp Fiction, for example, in which you have three major storylines that are interwoven. And uh, um, 
each of them finds a kind of resolution before the uh, the end, um, and the, the resolution involves the coming together of the three storylines, um, so that the boxer kills the uh, uh, the John Tra- Travolta character at the end of that storyline, and that's a uh, an interplay between two characters who've had nothing to do with one another for the the rest of the uh, of the film it's an interesting concept that works in literature as well i think perhaps we ought not conclude our conversation about this without thinking about the impact of these changes on the professional study of literature can you think of ways in which we have to approach stories differently now because of the modifications of the way in which stories appear to us. In, in, in the questions you know you have sent to us, um, you make this interesting distinction between on the one hand um, um, the interpretation of a text um, as one side of criticism and what you call the biographical and historical context as another side of uh, uh, reading stories uh, and analyzing stories. Um, but I would add, you know, if I look at the, you know, more recent books um, that have been published in the field of short story criticism, I would actually add on the one hand what some critics call the economic turn that looks into, say, the short stories um, or the development of the short story in the digital age more closely. So how let also short stories and writers move across different market segments. Um, and on the other hand, uh, what is also quite interesting is the entire new branch of materialism that comes out of book history uh, that looks at particularly, say, material dimensions of short stories. For instance, not only how they are, in a way, you know, put together, let me say, cycles, you know, but how they are branded, for instance, you know, uh, how they, so to speak, use on another plane also illustrations, you know, and certain types of typography in order to come across with certain messages. Um, and this is more on an experimental side, you know, but it's also part of the short story storytelling business. If you think, to give you an example, if you think, for instance, of Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, it comes with a map, for instance. Um, it also comes with a very particular cover uh, and title illustration, cover illustration. And all of that, so to speak, pertains to the physicality of the short story collection. And I think, you know, this is also part of what the, what we also should, you know, look into when we talk about, you know, more recent developments in the, the way short stories are packaged, sold, advertised, and marketed in a way. Yes, I mean, I, again, sort of starting with that dichotomy of criticism and scholarship or kind of historicizing work. I mean, I'm, I'm always, um, Ever since I first had job interviews and I was asked what my approach was, it was kind of be everything, you know, we should do, we, we shouldn't have to choose. We should be able to talk about the the marketing of the book, the the layout of the book, the um, to, to closely analyze a book, to think about the author, the the context, the ideas. I mean, all these things should should be brought to bear on on a rich short story criticism. And in some ways, the more multidimensional, the more rewarding. It, it would be, um, and I, I think it's the only thing I would. So I completely um, agree. The only thing I would sort of add, though, is I think there is perhaps less anxiety now than there perhaps was 
a little while ago about defining exactly what what the short story is so that we we don't really need to be be drawing lines and excluding those texts and including these and and in some ways today we've been talking about stories that um are are really on the margins of what we would be you know what would traditionally be thought of as short story and what's you know from that kind of historicist point of view what's interesting is why they are why certain kind of short stories get and certain short story writers um, become successful, you know, why are they in anthologies? I mean, the whole history of anthologies is fascinating to me. Um, and, and why, you know, how do the fashions change and, and how do they relate to other fashions? Um, I, I guess the, 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 the one thing I, I sort of would want to happen rather than necessarily I believe is happening is that I feel we, we use short stories so much in our teaching um, because they're short, because it's easy. And, and yet we often are, the, are then teaching a class on the, the city, say, you know, literature in the city. And, and we, we'll spend the whole um, three weeks or whatever talking about short stories, but we won't mention the fact they're short stories. Um, and even in critical books, you get kind of, you know, essays on the short story and the environment, which will be really about the environment and, and use some short stories as examples. And what I would hope is mm -hmm. that we can talk about the subject matter, but not forget the form. Talk about the form and not forget the subject matter. You know, th these things should should always be sort of together, <laughs> as rich as possible. Casey, I, I, I totally agree, you know, what I found quite um, sometimes sad, you know, in the classroom, but the single out um, short stories, you know, that we take them out of the context of a collection. Uh, so we hardly read the entire collection. And um, um, I just mentioned cycles, for instance, short story cycles. You know, very often, you know, they cohere these stories, you know, they answer each other, you know, they open a kind of a response echo environment for the reader. And so sometimes it's so enriching, you know, to read these entire collections. And then you may also look at different forms and, and play, place of forms uh, and all experiments, you know, among these different stories in one collection, you know, uh, that we very often by sealing them out, uh, by anthologizing them, or just by offering them in pieces, you know, uh, that you've just mentioned the city, then we just take one story out and then we present it in this context of the city and it's only theme that counts, but not form anymore. Uh, and I think, you know, this should be also taken more into consideration. I, I, I totally agree. The, the only thing I would add is that the, the kind of great, one of the great advantages of our era and. Um, is digitization and um, and the fact that so many journals um, are now available and you know through and, and and original books have been scanned as well so you can you know teach Melville um, you know Bartleby and ask students to look at it in the in Putnam's you, you can teach um, I teach Jean Toomer's Kane and they, they can look at, at all the little magazines in which individual pieces appeared and then look at the, the book itself. So I think we now have quite easy, much easier access to, to some of that contextual material and it's really just using it. <laughs> yes, I'm concerned that we not overstay our welcome. So I wanna move to uh, concluding remarks, but uh, just in this context of the short story cycle, there's, there's an, another dimension to it. 
And that is quite often the motivation for the action in one story is over in another story. For example, in Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine, Lulu's husband stands in front of a railroad train and is killed. He has committed suicide. There's nothing in that particular story to explain why he does that. But if you move back to the earlier stories, you start to realize that Lulu has seven children and only one of them is fathered by her husband. And as he comes to discover all of this, he's humiliated. And the net result of that is his suicide. And uh, without reading all of the stories in the collection, you can't understand the, the psychological foundation of, of that, the last one. Uh, well, uh, m moving to final uh, uh, comments on all of this, Oliver, uh, do you have something you'd like to add? Um, yeah, in, in terms of what we have just discussed, um, I think um, I would like to, um, uh, in terms of the future of the story, I would like us to engage um, uh, in, the, in the richness of the form more. Um, I think, you know, there are so many interesting formats out there currently, you know, if you think of speculative fiction, of science fiction, but in terms of local stories. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes I have the impression that this kind of variety, the dynamism of the short story form is forgotten, yeah, because we still tend to uh, define it uh, according to very particular conventions or standards. And I think, you know, we should pay more attention uh, to the richness uh, and to the uh, very yeah, vibrant field that is that is that is that is out there currently and also available to us uh, be it in print be it online uh, or be it in on scrolls you know that you push the button and then you so to speak you know you know get your story and then you know you read it and do something with it well i would i would sort of agree with that um that the, the kind of richness of of the short story and the richness of short story criticism are both things that to be kind of welcomed and, and encouraged. Um, in terms of what the future might hold, it, it's very hard to predict. I, th I think the, the, our, our kind of love of storytelling, the sort of human love of storytelling is, is um, as enduring as ever really. And the platforms change, the forms change, but um, I think the one thing we can be pretty confident about is that we will be talking about stories of, in some kind or other in, in the years to come. Well, it's comforting to hear you say that. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I wish we could continue it all day the way we do at conferences, uh, sometimes w well into the, into the night as, as, as well. But I thank both of you very much for participating in this, and uh, I hope our audience will find it interesting as well. Thank you very much.